Today, I am beyond humbled and honored to introduce you to a very special guest on Outside the Studio. Her name is Regina Louise. She is a speaker, she is an author, uh, she is a teacher, she is a coach, she um, is an award winner. Um, actually, one of her books is based on a best-selling memoir of hers titled, I Am Somebody's Child. And today, what I really love to do is dive into um, her new book, Permission Granted, um, to talk a lot about that. And also, Regina, to have you tell us kind of how you got to the place where you are today. Um, but I think what I, what I would like to do is have you just, just start right on off with telling us about your book, Permission Granted. Um, and just, you know, that title in general, what, what are we talking about there? What gives us that permission? What are we giving our, our readers permission to do? Well, hi, Tessa. Hi. Well, the intention is to have a blueprint. So often in my work, I've heard people say there, there's no instruction booklet. You know, whether that's raising children, whether that's navigating relationships, intrapersonal as well, well as interpersonal, professional. And so I've heard that over and over and over. And so I decided, what would it look like to write a personal growth manifesto that modeled what it is to to be our own permission, to go to ourselves for the answers. And also, I was on Good Morning America, an interview I had prayed for, and there it was. Mm -hmm. And there Robin Roberts and I were. And she asked me a question, I've said this before, that I had not prepared for. And I, I, I responded the way I responded. And then later in my hotel room, I thought, what, what is the question, that penultimate question that I want to be asked that would highlight the work I've done, who I am, the way in which I want and need to be seen? What would that question be? And I recognize that the question is, you know, I have my questions that I've written for Oprah. I have my questions I've written for Ellen. I'm just like the day, you know, I'm kind of over it now. <laughs> you know, for the past 20 years, I've had these questions written down for those, for those once in a lifetime interviews. And the question is not so much, what is it that I have to tell my younger self now that I would have told her then? But the question is, what did I tell my younger self then that enrolled her in coming along on the journey, buying in to the possibility of me growing her up to be the adult that she wants to be and wanted to be? And so the question then would have been, what did you do? What did you tell your younger self to get you from where you are 
to, to where you were to where you are. And that answer to that question would have been, all I've ever had is myself to give myself permission. That's all I've ever had. From the day I was 11 years old and I made that singular decision to not allow the, the verbal, the physical abuse, the neglect, the cascading of the sins of the mother on to me in, in the likeness of being beat with extension cords, hot wheel tracks, cut off green water hose. It's like, where, where, what, what, what got you from where you were to where you are? And so I have owned my own consent. I have been my own authority from as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Wow. And what a decision to make it at 11 years old. Mm -hmm. You made that decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From, from there on forward, have, have gone onward and upward to where you are today. Sure. So I know there's something is it is 30 foster homes is it was it at the at age 11 onward that you entered the foster care system and then there were about 30 foster homes into adulthood right so from 11 to 12 mm -hmm. i ping pong between my mother and my biological mother and my biological father but i could see they weren't in it they weren't into me they weren't into it I wasn't into them. Mm. And uh, so I took the fact that I was not into them and I decided to do something with it because they never would have, right? They would have just a lot, just become more and more and more neglectful. And I would have become more and more of a problem, precocious, standing up for myself. And who's ready for that? You know, the, the most healthiest people aren't always ready to be confronted with behaviors that are less than desirable. Mm -hmm. So imagine people who every, their, their, their resources are strained in every sense of the word restrained. So yeah, I, I had to step up and, and, and do what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, it, that wasn't a straight line from foster home to foster home. There were, there was psychiatric facilities, there was a group home. Um, uh, and that was like a span of 11 to 18 years old. And um, I believe you talk about in your book, um, leaving, was it a psychiatric facility or a group home? And through the process of that, applying for college and, and leaving that place with, I think you described like a garbage bag of your stuff and mm -hmm. walking onto your state campus, which was then your new home. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, nothing has changed that much for young people in foster care. So, you know, if I look at the subtitle of this book, you know, kick asterisk kick asterisk asterisk strategies to bootstrap your way to unconditional self-love i mean my entire life has been a matter of bootstrapping a matter of strategic moves you know and then to grow myself up to adulthood 
and recognize there's there's not a whole lot of gold at the end of that rainbow. There's 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 no gold pot that I am the gold pot at the end of the rainbow. So I recognize that through all the hard work, through all the striving, through all the bootstrapping to get to the other side of my circumstances, I am the gold that I'm the gift, I'm the boon. I having my selfhood is about as good as it's gonna get in terms of, you know, that. Do you think, so I think about this often in terms of that adverse, that experience of adversity and trauma in childhood. What makes, what was like the turning point that made you feel like I have to take care of myself or no one else will? It almost seems like there's a turning point for people and maybe it's not that simple. Maybe it's, it's much less binary than that in terms of I'm going to choose to go down this path in self-care and self-love, or I'm going to choose to go down the other path, which is um, more of self-deprivation and um, more trauma and more self-harm. I don't know. Is it that simple or? I don't think it is. I think it's so complicated. I mean, right now I have a, a young person in my life who I, mentor as often as I can. She was, in my opinion, sort of dumped mm. in an apartment the day she emancipated about nearly a year ago now. And she picked moving to the, the town I lived in, I live in because, you know, she imagined she'd have some proximity to me. She didn't discuss this, of course. She just made that decision. And one of the things that I find that is profound about her circumstances, no matter how much time I spend with her, no matter how good I am, no matter how generous, no matter how I work to attune to some semblance of decency, honoring her in dignity, it's almost as though her central nervous system, her mind, her body is hardwired for darkness, mm -hmm. for deep, 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 deep self-pity. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating. And, and she, she got a job and the job she took is in the tenderloin. And this is an 18 year old girl. Mm. You know, when I was going to help her find a job, I found like, you know, really cool retail opportunities. She said that she was afraid to sleep at night in, in her own apartment. So she would rather work a graveyard so that she could sleep during the day, which I totally understood. But instead of anything on the upside, on the light side, on the pretty side, right? I would love to put beautiful shoes away at night, you know, in a, in a swanky department store. But for her, she wants to work the night shift, the graveyard shift with people who are losing and, and, and struggling with their lives on just in some of the most seedious, seedious, seedious circumstances. How is an 18 year old wired to that? Right. How is that humanly possible? And then I'm thinking, 
what must she think about all this love and light that I bring? It's like, it doesn't, mm. you know, so to answer that question, I think we're all wired differently and how we believe is the sum total to what we experience. So I've never believed that I was anything less than the little girls that I read about in the books I read about. And I'd be damned if my life was going to be less productive, less privileged, less than anybody, simply because my skin is darker. Like that's insane. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or because I don't have family. It's like, okay, how do we, how do we work around this? Yeah. Yeah. It's such an, and I don't ask the question because I, I want a specific binary answer, but it's something that I, I, I think about often because you take people who are in a very a similar situation, you know, and one goes one, one goes right and one goes left maybe, or one kind of like bounces between right and left. Right. And it's, right. it always has me thinking, is it environment? Is it a blend? And I honestly, I'm sure it's, you know, a blend of environment and um, maybe genetic predisposition. And then you put someone in a situation where they're traumatized and they're abused and, and maybe they're genetically predisposed to that, like more depressed state of being, then is that what causes um, a more dark outlook on life. I don't know, but I always often wonder about that. So thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, and, and that brings me to my next question of this idea of, okay, so we don't have, maybe we don't have parents, maybe physically they're there, but they're absent, or maybe literally like in your case where your, your parents just aren't there. We have to learn how to self parent. And this is something that you talk about in your book. Um, and you talk about giving readers the opportunity to self-parent. So can you talk about that concept a little bit more? Yeah. I, when I think about the idea of self-parenting, it's easy for any of us to replicate the patterns that we learned as children and to get stuck in that I am a Hoffman process teacher. And so we, we do a lot of work around facing the challenges and the ways in which we meet our lives as a result of the patterns that we learn as children. So I can't help but allow that those teachings to, to provoke right? A certain amount of curiosity around, okay, now wait, I don't want to be parented the way I was parented, just like with self-love, people say in the buzzword, self-love, self-love. But what about those of us who experience self-love in the most heinous of ways? It, what are you talking about? You know, practice self-love. So for me, it's like, if I were the good enough parent for myself, what would, what would, what would that look like? So it means that I would take care of my mental health. 
I do that. I'm in therapy, various modalities. I will make sure that I have the funds, the resources, and, and the time to, you know, to get my needs, whatever those needs are. I would encourage myself. I would be tender with myself. I would be generous with myself. And I've always been that way. I did not know as a child growing up in those moments when I would blow air on a skin knee and kiss it that I was, you know, positively parenting myself with qualities of self-love and nurturing and tenderness and compassion and so forth. That to me, the way I would be with my child, the way I am with any child I come into contact with, no one taught me that. No one taught me how to be with a child. It's a it's an innate knowing. It's, it's connecting to love. See, all of these are, they're scalable practices. So I believe that love for me, self-love, so if we back it up, self-love is for me recognizing that the heart of emotional goodness is within me. And when I can pour that out, when I can pour into myself, when I can render the positivity of, of, of love to myself first and then to others, that is an act of, of, of positively parenting. So if I start with, oh, where I am, everywhere I am is the site of, of outpouring emotional goodness to me first, then to others, then, I can go into unconditionally doing that. So I don't have conditions on myself to love myself. It's not like I'm going to say, okay, Regina, if you don't get that big promotion and make me look good, then guess what? Mm, I don't know. Mm, you're not trying too hard. You're not being good. You're, you're not good enough. No, I'm not doing that ever. I've never been that person. And, and, and I can only begin where I am, Tessa, I recognize that I've never been someone to insult myself, to put myself down, to bully myself. I have a, I have a strategy uh, to get off your back and get on your side. It's intentional. Mm -hmm. I've never been someone to say to myself, you're so dumb, you're so stupid. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, I talk about at one point in the early in the uh, pandemic, I was having to make myself a cup of coffee and I almost scolded myself. And in that whole exchange, I almost said something to myself that I, it's just so uncharacteristic of me. And it was like, you're so, and I caught myself and my little girl inside, my innocence was like, I know you weren't thinking about doing that. You better slow your roll, old lady. Uh, uh, you don't get to talk to me like that. And so that's my inner child speaking. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So to have that kind of relationship with my own innocence, to know when I've had enough, right? To know when I've given too much of myself away and now I am too heavily reliant on a partner, a friend. I have to dial it all. I get to dial it all back and recognize that I can, I can calm the waters 
of, of chaos, of feeling disremembered and unaccounted for, as I sometimes can feel. It's much less now as an adult than it was as a young person, because I tell you, I, I know not one person. I'm 58 years old. I know not one person who has had an experience even close to mine who can say that they've done this or they've done that. You know, the, the closest person I've met was a person who had the concentration camp stamp on his arm. And he was like a 90 year old neighbor who I used to take collard greens to and have cornbread with him. And we would sit in the silence and just be with one another. That's about as close as I've ever come to anyone who can actually say they were so alone that aloneness, they, they were able to transcend it. Yeah. So I wonder if that comes from the experience of the adversity itself. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I think about just like the only place that I can draw from, which is my own personal experience. And I know through therapy and awareness and the work that I do with myself that I have a really harsh inner judge. And the way that I speak to myself is often not kind. And that is often happening below the line of awareness. There's this disconnect between um, a conscious level of how I'm speaking to myself, how I'm connecting to myself, how I'm parenting my own self. And, um, and often just it, it's like an automatic knee jerk response, right? So what, what do we do when we are caught in that wheel of unawareness when we don't have that, um, you know, that level of work that we've done on ourselves or that, that developed relationship with ourselves? And I imagine like, as we dive into the book, there's all kinds of kick-ass strategies <laughs> to make that connection right but what would you say to the person that has that really harsh inner dialogue and the mere maybe just becoming aware of it right patience mm. right there, there's no magic wand the only I, earlier today i heard someone say there's no magic pill there's no magic pill and I, I thought about it and I thought, no, that, that, that's not my experience. The quote unquote magic pill that has the power to, to affect the dopamine in our brains and so forth is gratitude, mm -hmm. right? So to be grateful for where we are in the moment. Gratefulness aids the brain in developing new neurological pathways. Mm -hmm. So it has been said that gratefulness is actually likened to a magical pill mm -hmm. because it slows everything down and it supports, as I just said, the making of new pathways. So for the person who hasn't, who doesn't have years of work under her or his belt, you begin where you are. For me, I, I gather 
into my unconditional self-love toolkit, I gather modality, modalities from as many of the ancient wisdoms as humanly possible. One of the ways I've managed to get through this life is, amongst many, is investing in myself. Mm. When I had very, very little resources, what I would do instead of going to movies, parties, taking excursions, is I would take that 150 or $300 that I saved you know, a month in order to go to a workshop, a meditation workshop, a self-understanding workshop, a rewiring the brain workshop, a intimacy workshop. I mean, let's just, you name it. I have engaged in, in character workshops because I knew that, I knew it's, it's almost as though you look in the mirror and don't know who you are. I would look in the mirror and not understand what I saw and metaphorically. So I remember reading a book by the uh, philosopher Rollo May and not quite understanding, but being drawn to it, 17, 18, 19, you know, serious philosophical stuff and, you know, began to explore existential angst. And why am I here? You know, what is this? And some things that completely collided with my then, I'd say more Christian identified than anything. And I just kept learning. And even when I ran into to things that I just couldn't understand, I didn't have the, the education, I was untutored in the understanding, I kept at it, kept at it, kept at it to break through and, and to break through and, and to do so is to have that breakthrough within. And then to recognize, ah, I can better understand myself. I taught myself character. What are the tenets of having character? Honest, trustworthy, courage, having integrity. Integrity is, is the axis, I think, upon which character is built. To be one's word. And so that was natural because my mother and father were never their word. They were never integrous, but they never did what they said they would. So of course, I'm going to rebel, which would be a great, that's one rebellion that I, I can say go, is how I wanted to be different and develop that relationship with self and character. I wanted to have sound character. So I say to those people, back to that, what is it that you want for you? Whether you know whether you are aware of what you don't know or aware of what you do know, what, what are you willing to risk? How uncomfortable are you willing to get and stay with the discomfort in order to get to the other side? So it doesn't matter where you are, right? It doesn't matter. It's having the patience, the tenderness, the good will intention of supporting yourself to be where you are, regardless of what anybody else says. Given what I came from, I, some people think I should have been a drug addict. Well, I was that child whose mother, my good enough mother came online so young when I was 11. Mm -hmm. I have been in hundreds, thousands of situations 
where I'm always a designated driver because people would be so high. So this, so that, until I stopped putting myself in those situations. But I, by the grace, by grace, I managed to say no and hold that. To be integrous, my no meant no. So I say to people who are new at self discovery and personal growth, be loving and gentle and have the intention of engaging in that epistemic stretch, right? Because so much of what we do in life is based on what's called situational knowledge, knowledge that's very concretized, knowledge that's very difficult to break, hence racism and, and sexism and hate. Mm -hmm. These are constructs that are, that are situated. They're very difficult to break through, especially if people benefit, whether that's a direct benefit or they get benefit by being bystanders in it. So it's important to understand that sometimes what's going to be required is to have an epistemic stretch, to take that which we believe we know and be willing to go into praxis with it, to investigate, to be reflexive, to, to rest with what it is we believe we know in exchange for uh, uh, enhancing or, or overturning our current worldview that clearly isn't working for us. Yeah. And as I hear you talk about that and the uh, willingness to sit in the discomfort, how long can you, how far are you willing to go into the discomfort? I also, does that go hand in hand with fear? Are they um, mutually exclusive? How does fear play into one's ability to kind of, it's almost like taking a, a leap of faith that you have to trust in yourself that you're going to land on the other side or that you're going to learn how to, right? So, mm, yeah, you know, I just came across this really great axiom on Instagram. When I, I'm, I'm going to hone into what you said about fear. Mm -hmm. And the statement was, Red flags are not red flags when the red flag is home. And what was provocative about that is so much, at least for me, so much of how I learned to be in this world, terrifyingly alone. I mean, terrifyingly alone. I was in solitary confinement in the 70s, you know, and the fear that basically I was thrown into the, the, the gut of fear. There were no windows in that room. There were no doors. And the only thing that was there was the light at the bottom of the door until I discovered that I could engage with the light. I'm talking fear unlike anything my mind had ever rested with. And when I look back on that, and I recognize that from a young girl, fear 
always rode shotgun with me from a little girl, you know, the abuse that I suffered and being locked in closets and just horrible, horrible things. And, and then growing myself up. And again, I write in grow through what you go through in my book. I talk about and in a experience that I had in grad school eight years ago and how when I arrived at my newest apartment, hold on, is, can you hear the hammering in my background? Hold on, I'm gonna I'm I'm handle that, hold on. This idea of fear being false evidence of hearing real, so true. And the myriad of ways in which any of us can be in transference with complicated relationships and experiences in life, fear, to be in relationship with fear is, is pretty profound. And as I said, in my graduate experience, the, the moment the the movers left, I was gripped and it was profound. I thought I was having a mental, no, I was having a mental health crisis because I knew I was healthy and I knew I was of sound mind. I've never been diagnosed with personality disorders or, you know, legitimately. So where was this fear coming from? And I, at that point, decided to to give way to the fear and employ an internal family systems exercise of talking to the fear, asking it what it had for me, what did it have to say to me or for me? What is it that I needed? And it took, it took about six to eight weeks to rest my psyche from that fear. And my best guess is, for me at least, whatever occurred, the trauma was pre-verbal. Mm. The neglect was pre-verbal because I had no words, I had no memory, but the asphyxiating terror that gripped me was as though it had happened the day before, but I, I had no story, I had no narrative. So I found myself crying, I found myself singing myself lullabies. So something in me knew that what had had that experience, that aspect of me was very, 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 very young. Mm. And one, one thing I noticed about the signature of my own fear is how gripping it was and how in the fear, like in, in that 68 weeks when I was courageous enough to allow the, the, all of it to just come up, the memories, I was looking for someone to save me. And I'm thinking, what, what is, where is, what? And then I was wondering, was I kidnapped and held at some point? There's so much I don't know about my life because if I didn't know any better, 
it was seeming as though a narrative existed around me being abducted, around me being held against my will and told, don't do this or that and have my life threatened. That's what it felt like to a cellular level. Mm -hmm. And so what needed to happen is I needed to be, to, to like be in transference with the fear and, and, and see what that could teach me. And what I began to notice in this altered state, for me, it was an altered state, was I wanted someone to save me, to rescue me. And I recognized, ah, it's me. I'm that someone. And so to, to pivot and allow myself to grow up with this other part of me that was arrested, woof, I had to do what had to be done. And it took eight weeks, I believe. And I went from, I put like three locks on the front door because I was just terrified. I wouldn't take showers. I mean, it was just, it, it, I had just made myself this vehicle for this terror to move through me, to have its way, but not at night, especially. In the daytime, I was fine. You know, I went to classes, I did my thing, but at night it was like, oh my God. So I just listened to what needed to be heard and so I put locks on my front door slept by the front door for like weeks on end then slept by the sofa on the floor because for some reason I felt that I could get away you know and again I'm just allowing whatever has occurred or whatever to to allow the room for it to be and then a couple weeks in I sort of slept in the uh, hallway between my bedroom and the front room. And then finally, I just took any amount of money that it took and I made my bed into something out of Architectural Digest. And baby, it was, I was like the, I had like the best apartment as a grad student. First of all, I was the oldest grad student <laughs> at UCR at the time. And I had, my bedroom was exquisite, it was showroom. And finally the night came when I got in bed and I read myself a uh, bedtime story from African-American folktales, mm -hmm. thinking and hoping that those folktales, which were written for people who look like me, for people who look like me. I was praying that that would assuage some of the uh, heartbreak and it did, it was wonderful. So anyway, mm. fear can teach us a lot if we're willing to listen to her. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's not an easy dame to negotiate with, but if you're willing to open the door and let her in or open the door and let her out, then rest assured, if you're able to recognize and think like that, rest assured that you probably have enough sound of a psyche, of an ego to support 
that journey and to bring yourself back. Mm. That's what I've had to do. Mm. Or chosen to do, rather. Yeah. Yeah. That's, wow. I just, well, first of all, of course, I feel inspired. And um, second of all, just thank you for your vulnerability and honesty in sharing that. Um, this has me thinking about the chapter where you introduced love. How do you say it? Love formations. Love formations. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And there's one particular quote in here that um, I say often w when I'm teaching. And um, I always, I believe that the things that I'm teaching are the things that I need to learn myself. And those, that's the reason why I'm teaching those things. And the, the quote is, and I love it that you call it out as like bumper sticker worthy or like put it on your t-shirt worthy, but you must love yourself before you can love anybody else. I mean, how many times do we, we say that, right? And it's, I always am like, how though? Why is this so hard? Um, and that's, I'm assuming what this chapter is all about, but I just would love to hear you just in your own words, talk more about that. About loving oneself, is that? Yeah, the yeah. whole, your whole, um, your spin on love formations and how yeah. you do it in your own life. Yeah, I'm just going to read a little bit, but I think, yeah. Please. How often have you heard the bumper sticker worthy adage, you must love yourself before you can love anybody else? How many times have you nodded your head in agreement, making silent promises to do just that, to love yourself first? That is, until you meet your next crush and off you go, once again, convinced that this time they will meet your needs and fulfill your wants and desires. And you'll feel just the way you did when you were about five years old, totally innocent and the apple of someone's eye. Hmm. Well, you're not alone. I too have been there and done that and long for that paradisical feeling. And that is where love formations come in. Love provides a sacred place to return to inside ourselves when doors of refuge may be closed to us. Love formations make us less re reliant on outside sources for self-acceptance, empowerment, and permission. By placing love formations at the front of your journey, you can choose your allies, front load your resources. For me, you see, love is my ally, an always willing collaborator, continuously there. Love will never leave me stranded and on my own, confused and alone. When I remember this and are able to collect, connect with the truth of it, I am never unaided and you don't have to be either. So for me, a love formation, for me, I'm a Hoffman process teacher, I think I said that. And for years, I've stood in front of the class and I've said, love is the outpouring, the flowing, the rendering of the heart of emotional goodness to ourselves first and then to others. And then I went through this crisis of, I'm like, what, what is love? What the F? Like, what? You know, love is state bound from what I know, the research I've done on it. And that research was done where they inebriated like 200 people. They got them really, really, really drunk. And then when they were sober, 
and they recorded them when they were drunk and then when they were sober, they didn't remember an iota of what they learned or what they experienced while being inebriated. And from that study, the conclusion is love is state bound. In, in, in the ways in which you learned love is the way in which love will show up. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something earlier about that implicit knowledge, knowledge that is so unconscious, we just have no idea. And I think the idea of love can come from that, you know? And so of, you, we don't know what's driving. You know, and we think it's those red flags that take us home. We often think that's love, right? Getting yelled at, getting beat, getting hit, getting shamed, getting diminished, getting cheated. All of those things can be love to those people for whom that is love. Because dependent upon the, the, the state in which you learned it, love to me is it's flexible, it's fluid. It, it kind of depends, right? So with my curiosity, what is love? And I have to go back through my mental files. Ah, for me, let's think about this whole idea of love being the flowing, the outpouring of the rendering of, from the heart of emotional goodness to ourselves first. So the words outpouring, rendering, flowing, for me, from the heart of emotional goodness first, to ourselves, well, wait a minute, then that means love has to be internal. Love has to, if, if that's true, that, wait, what? So for real, I am the site where love is, it begins with me, right? So I began to sit with that and meditate with that and check that out. And it felt right, it felt right. I am a gifted teacher, gifted and coach. I'm gifted at what I do and, and a speaker. So language arts, high intelligence, high skill. So if I were to sink into all of that, then as a teacher, as a coach, as a speaker, I've never written a speech ever. I tap in to the heart of emotional goodness. I would not have said it was that, but I recognize it as that. And I, I give the speech to myself first. And then I get out of the way and every, every presentation is extemporaneous and I allow the truth from the heart of emotional goodness to pour out. So love formation is giving myself permission to validate and authenticate the heart of my own emotional goodness. I am good enough. I am worthy of my own love. And as such, I can pour into myself. I can flow that in and around and out of myself. And I can render that from the place of truth. So love formation is affirming, affirming, to be solid, to be moored in knowing, to be moored in solidity, to be moored in the truth of what is.
for me on my own terms as I invite readers to do for them on their own terms. I don't need to wait for you to apologize. I don't need to wait for you to love me. I don't need to wait for you to come for me. I spent my life doing that only to recognize, ah, when I come for me, things are always so much better. Mm. When, I, when I forgive myself first, if you choose to forgive me or not, that's your choice. But I, I can take my power back so that I'm not in some bizarre Stockholm Syndrome-like experience with you, waiting for you and, and being that victim. You know, I prefer to, to be the victor of my sovereign experience as opposed to the victim. So for me, a love formation is a testament to the truth that right where I am, always, unquestionably, so too is the heart of emotional goodness. And I can choose as I wish to met that out to myself and then to others. My word is good enough. That's beautiful. I love that. Regina, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, and I, I think what I, where I'd like to end is by asking you one more question. And I, I think I'd like that question to be, what is it that you most hope readers will take away from your book? If there were one, maybe two or three, I know it's always hard to just land on one thing. So if you need two or three things that they take away, what would that be? What would those be? that they would, one, pause to consider their own worthiness, that they would take away that which prevents them from living their life on their own terms with their own permission. And lastly, that they would be courageous enough. I, I have a strategy to BYOP, to bring your own permission, sort of like BYOB, bring your own bottle, bring your own booty, bring your own bottle, whatever it is. To BYOP, bring your own permission, bring your own pretty, bring your own power, bring your own positivity, bring your own principles, bring your own panache, right? Bring it. Don't wait for somebody to see it. Don't wait for someone to name it for you. Name it. And you can be quiet about it. You can be humble about it. You can be sweet on it. You can keep it to you, for you. You know, and I have my website is being re, re, uh, restructured because I will have permission slips that people can acquire and just like I, in that strategy, BYOP, bring your own permission slip. So you're going out, right? And I know sometimes when I go out, sometimes I have gone out looking to see if people think I'm as cute as I think I am. But if I write myself a permission slip, like girl, yes, just yes, unequivocally, yes then I'm bringing my own permission everywhere I go. So if I meet up with somebody who ain't feeling me the way I'm feeling me, 
It's okay. I see you. Move on. <laughs> Move on. Move on. And not from this place of being arrogant or self-centered or full of oneself. But then again, why not be full of the goodness of you? Because otherwise we could we could wind up being full of some narcissist, right? How many women on a daily basis and men are affected by that bipolar narcissist dance, right? Meeting that person to, to see who we are in order to be who we imagine ourselves to be. Forget about it. Bring your own permission. Bring your own power. Bring your own pre. I love that so much. Thank you, Regina. You're welcome. Where can people, so your, your website's under construction for a little bit, but where can people find you and connect with you and, right. and find out more? I mean, yeah, you can, you can go to it now. It's just not updated, but uh, okay. my, I love Instagram. I love the social media. So I am at the real Regina Louise on Instagram, the real Regina Louise, just like it sounds. And my website is IamReginaLouise.com. And of course, I'm on Facebook. I'm not a big Twitter person. I don't get it. I still don't get it. But Facebook, Instagram, and my website are places. And, you know, subscribe because one of the things, like, I will go, I'm going to go into conversation with my editor next Tuesday. I'm really looking forward to that. And one of the things she said to me is, I, I need you to write this book as though each of these strategies could be a workshop in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what I've done, is I've written a book which could be a standalone workshop. So for people who are interested in that, follow me, subscribe on my website and as well as on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Tessa. Thank you, All right. thank you Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day. You too. Oh, so pretty. Bye.